And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Luigi Shambarella, UK-based Monroe Institute trainer, board member, and UKCP-registered hypno-psychotherapist. Since 2010, Luigi has been involved in expanding Monroe's international reach through global collaborations, talks, interviews, and podcasts. Luigi holds qualifications in psychology and psychotherapy and is involved in teaching and accrediting hypnopsychotherapy students throughout the UK's National College of Hypnosis and Psychotherapy. Luigi, thank you for joining me today and welcome. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Nice to be here. Luigi, how did you get involved with OBEs and hypnotherapy in the first place? Uh, do you want the long version or the short version? Mm-hmm. I can... <laughs> Whatever makes you okay, happy. Okay, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll give you a slightly shorter version, and then and then let's see where it goes, and then if you want to pick into that. So, um, okay, it's going to seem like a little bit of a detour, but when I was seven years old, uh, my grandmother died. And, um, and not long afterwards, I had an experience where I woke up in the morning and um, I had a picture of the the Virgin Mary, my family's Roman Catholic, and that was on the wall. And I looked at this picture and I noticed that something was weird and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And then what I noticed was that the sky in the background was moving. And I thought, that's weird. And then the next thing, the the whole picture just became brilliant light, incredibly bright light, but it didn't dazzle me. I was still able to look at it. And then when the light subsided a little bit, instead of seeing the the Virgin Mary, um, I saw my grandmother. And she looked really radiant, really well. Um, she died of cirrhosis of the liver. So the last time I'd seen her was with jaundice. You know, she was pretty yellow and, and very ill. Um, and But in the painting, or coming out of the painting, she looked very well. And... I was able to communicate with her a little bit because I was quite terrified, actually, by the experience. I, I wasn't expecting to wake up to that. And um, I was only able to sort of muster in Italian, you know, the question, um, are you my grandmother? Yes. And and she said, yes. And, and I'm in this place full of light. And then I found myself waking up again. And I thought, whoa, that was a weird kind of dream. And I I got up and I went downstairs and I told my mother, uh, this is what I've experienced. And, and she was really surprised by what I'd shared, but not only because of the actual experience itself, but the, by, because of the fact that my brother had had pretty much the same experience just a little bit before. So in that morning, we both related a contact experience with, with our deceased grandmother and related it independently to my mother. So that was like, whoa, okay. Um, really interesting experience, kind of like a shared experience, although I didn't have my brother in the room with me at the time. And so that got me thinking, well, what was that? (laughs) Uh, I wasn't thinking about life and death questions. I wasn't thinking about the afterlife, spirituality, anything like that. I was just a seven-year-old kid. And and I wasn't particularly grieving my grandmother either. You know, I know that sounds a little bit weird, but I was born and raised in England. And my grandmother was in Italy, and we'd only seen each other a handful of times. So, of course, there was um, a loving connection, but it wasn't like I was devastated because, you know, not having my grandmother in my life for months on end was okay because, you know, she was in Italy. So, you know, I wouldn't see her that often anyway. 
so I just thought, you know, what was that? What what is that experience? And and I started questioning that, but I always had it at the back of my mind that something weird was going on. And when when people would discuss what what I later understood to be very materialist or objectivist kind of or reductionist perspectives about basically where as as human beings we are um talking meat sacks <laughs> you know we just somehow a rock um got more and more complex and started thinking about itself <laughs> you know that's the that's the fantasy that the the materialists uh, live by um i thought no there's something something that doesn't add up with that and so um i started looking for for alternative uh ways of of perceiving reality and, and understanding reality and and um so I, I got involved in psychology through that, essentially. I went through school and then, you know, but this was always in the back. And then other experiences came along. I did have some out-of-body experiences and lucid dreams. Nothing particularly massive, you know, like earth shattering, just interesting. And and then um, when I started studying psychology and went to university to study it, what I quickly found was that um, what I was really interested in was not being explored in any direct way by um yeah uh, the, the the whole field of psychology as far as i could tell um in its effort to become a biological science um reductionism had, had crept in i think too much and so the philosophical aspect you know what is mind what is consciousness um you know what is what is meaning and purpose all these kind of things that are, are very much in the realm of philosophy um, were only very loosely considered in in psychology, and it was more um, interested in you know just things like well maybe cognitive biases in that sense, but um, you know perception and, and cognition type experiments and that kind of stuff, which is really useful and interesting, uh, but certainly didn't address the things that I was particularly interested in. Uh, but I completed my degree. I, I enjoyed completing it, but it didn't give me the answers that I was looking for. And and while I was uh, studying it, I uh, came across hypnosis, and uh, and it was through that, through some um, very involved hypnosis experiments. I had a friend who was a hypnotist, and and we did a lot of experiments in in a lab um, at the University of Manchester. And th this was just stuff that we were doing because we felt like it. You know, it was just exploratory kind of work. Um, so it was less therapy, more just you know, let's how low can you go. And through that, I started to have a lot of out-of-body and lucid dream experiences, uh, pretty much spontaneously. Um, so while there were fellow students who were busy um, probably taking every single drug under the sun and getting drunk every night, um, I, I didn't do that at all. I, I, I was in my room. I was meditating a lot. And I got very interested in dream yoga. And from that, I... I um, cultivated a very, very strong lucid dreaming practice, which overlapped quite nicely with what I was doing in out-of-body experiences. Um, and based on that work, I then found out about the Monroe Institute. And when I found out about uh, Robert Monroe in particular and read his first book, Journeys Out of the Body, um, I just couldn't put it down. You know, I, I, he was a guy in the 1950s who was having experiences that were just way out there and he couldn't understand them. And, and so he set up a research division in order to help him to do that and so on. And very methodical in how he documented 
his experiences, especially in that first book, Journeys, uh, Journeys Out of the Body. And I thought, oh, I really want to go to the Monroe Institute. You know, the, when I found out that it was a real place, I was like, my God, I've got to get there. Um, but I was a poor student um, and I finished my degree and I was like, OK, I need to get into the world of work and start earning some money. And, and this was in the background. You know, I want to go to Monroe. And I managed to save some money and, and have some favorable circumstances, which meant that I could go to the Institute, but not um, I, by the time I could go to the Institute, I found out that trainings were taking place in Spain in English. And so um, I went to Spain to do my first program, which was the Gateway program, the Gateway Voyage. And that, you know, really opened some doors for me, not, not, not necessarily and only because of the program content, um, but because I, I really knew at that point that I could have shared experiences with other people, that energetically I could connect with other members of the group. And so it kind of just took it out of being an experience just in my head to understanding that I could connect to a field. And, and that then was was really fascinating. And I, I went to the Monroe Institute in Virginia um, the following year to do the guidelines program. And, and you know, one thing led to another and I became a trainer. Um, I could go into the details of that, but, you know, bit by bit, I followed every synchronicity under the sun. And, and, and now I'm a member of the board. Um, and it's just a fascinating journey to be so involved with such a such an incredible organization. That's great. You've had spontaneous out of body experiences, as you mentioned, and I've tried. I'm not sure if I actually ever have or not. And I know for sure if I have, I didn't see anything. Maybe I was in the black void. But it seems like it's difficult for most people to actually have them. If that's true, then are some people just wired in a way to have them spontaneous like you? Or is there something else that, that's going on? Well, I, I, I'd say that something else is going on. Um, because I think it's as, as much a, a, a maybe a, a skill as a talent, you know, that, that some people are virtuosos. You know, Bob was a, was a Mozart when it came to out-of-body experiences. He was a guy who, um, in his 40s, I mean, that was how old he was when he, when he had his first um, out-of-body experience. And, and he, he was a guy who, um, once he had an out-of-body experience, he, he, he just couldn't stop. You know, he, he was having loads and loads of them in a very classic sense. So by the classic sense, I mean peeling out of the body, at least that's the perception. You hit the ceiling, you turn around, you see your body in the bed, you either scream and try to get back into it, or you fly out the window and say, woohoo. You know, he was having that, a very visual and very visceral experience. I think where, where um, a lot of people can have out-of-body experiences and not even know is, is that you can actually bilocate. You can move your consciousness somewhere else instantly. And that is uh, something that I think is available to almost everybody, almost instantly. And what happens is because that experience doesn't match the the belief about what an out-of-body experience is supposed to be, then they can very easily discount it or they can discount the signs that lead up to that type of experience. So I think our ability to be able to phase, to shift our consciousness very quickly somewhere else, is very natural. I think that we do that uh, very early on in life. And, and if you look at people who've had spontaneous experiences, they've usually been quite young 
um, between four and seven, eight years old, like I was seven years old, you know, when I had that kind of interesting experience and then beyond that. Um, but I wouldn't say that I had loads of out-of-body experiences early on. I, I have, I remember some, and I also remember those type of dreams that were like flying dreams and, and you know, that were, I was floating down the stairs and that kind of thing. And, and you know, these are, uh, are like symbolic representations of that sense of being away from um, what is our uh, understanding of the physical body. So I, I think it, it is very natural. I know that at the Monroe Institute, we train people to, in particular, use the phasing model of consciousness to instantly be somewhere else. Um, and that that is very successful. And the other thing is that we need to look at the whole um, idea of having to lift out of your body in order to be out of body, because that's really not what where we are with physics. <laughs> you know, that's mm -hmm. that, that's kind of an old idea that we're here in a physical body, and then there's another space called called the non physical, and it's out of body. Um, it feels like that because that's what the experience can sometimes look like and, and taste like and smell like and whatever else. But actually, it's where we are placing our attention, where we're placing our focus at any one time. And Bob Moreau, as, as he um, matured in, in his experiences, he started talking less about the classic lift-out experience and more about the phasing model of consciousness. So he was talking about you know the quick switch method, where you would think about instantly being somewhere else and would be there. And and so this is also something that um, I often ask people, which is, you know, you want to have an out-of-body experience. Why? <laughs> Why do you want to do that? Because if you're very clear about what your intent is, then you can find multiple ways of getting there. That doesn't have to be the classic lift out. And I think sometimes the, the technique itself becomes the goal, and that's the problem. So when you have... Um, a goal as something that, you know, what you would do when you're out of body, that's the goal, right? Then more out-of-body experiences happen. If you make the technique the target, that becomes more difficult. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's a, somewhere, somewhere in between. You know, people can do this very spontaneously and they can cultivate it. Um, but I, I know many people, and myself included, you know, I had many more out-of-body experiences once I started training myself to do it. And although there was a natural ability, um, that really needed cultivating. And therefore, um, the way that I have out-of-body experiences now is a lot easier and a lot, a lot more fluid and flexible than it was when I first started. Did Bob invent the binaural beat, and it, especially in terms of using it for this kind of stuff? And if so, was that the catalyst that gave him the ability to have these out-of-body experiences? It, it's a great question um, because there's often a lot of confusion around this. So, so Bob didn't create binaural beats. That was a phenomenon that was already understood in, in the, uh, the turn of the century, pretty much. Um, and so, and then it was it was well, it's a it's a natural phenomenon where you have dichotic listening. You've got your left ear and right ear, and that takes in sound uh, differently, you know, that you're left in the right channel. So when when a sound reaches your left ear, um, before it reaches your right ear, then your brain has, has sensors that work out the difference 
between those two sound phases and locates things in space. So if it hits the left ear before the right ear, you know that it's somewhere off in the left. And different animals have that even more finely tuned so they can absolutely pinpoint even the depth of that sound so they can work out distance and whatever else. So um, where, where the binaural beat becomes a phenomenon is by isolating the left and the right channels. Now, that isn't particularly natural. You don't tend to get that in nature because we didn't evolve with headphones on. So when you split the sound going into the left ear and the right ear, then your, your, your brain is trying to work out the direction of that sound. And because it will never be able to work it out because it's presented separately, it starts to create an artificial sound in between, which is the phase differential. And it starts to create a beat uh, based on, on that, that difference. So if you have like, you know, 300 hertz in one ear, uh, 304 in another, then your brain starts to uh, create a pulse sound of the difference, which would be four hertz. That bit was worked out by Bob and his research team. So when when you start to get the the differential, what what Bob and his team figured out was that um, that after a short space of time, your your brain waves start to match that 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 beat frequency, and that's called the frequency following response. So you start seeing rises in things like delta once you start. Uh, um, uh, creating a, a delta binaural beat in, in the brain and, and so on. And, and now we're using uh, things that produce things like gamma and so on in the brain as well, gamma synchrony. So that use of the binaural beats for exploring consciousness was certainly something that Bob Monroe came up with and uh, it was then built into the programs that we teach at the Monroe Institute and the tools that came out after that that were commercially available. Um, the the second part of your question, which is, you know, was that the catalyst for Bob? Um, no, it really wasn't. You know, Bob, um, first of all, started working essentially with self-hypnosis. So he was doing a lot of affirmation type work and, and a lot of sleep learning type of work. And he was the primary guinea pig for that. And I think what, what uh, seems to have coincided with that was this idea that um, in order for you to be able to uh, learn during sleep, you need to be asleep, right? So he then started playing with different sort of sound patterns, a lot of pink noise, white noise type stuff, things that, um, and there's different stories about this. I'm not really sure how much of this is is, is fact versus legend about it because, you know, there the, the weren't people around, well, um, uh, from that time when he first started doing it. But from what I can gather, you know, Bob used to fly glider planes and prop planes. And there were effects like, you know, knowing that you had to kind of synchronize the propellers, otherwise you would get this kind of which could make you feel drowsy or the sound of like a repetitive sort of as the train is moving along and so on. So you thought, okay, maybe there's something that we can play around with with these repetitive sounds to help people fall asleep. And then, you know, later on, the binaural beat became something that was introduced into that uh, sound mix already um, established. So Bob was making, uh, well, he had his first out-of-body experience um, in, I think it was 1958. Um, and, you know, the binaural beats really started coming on in the early, very early 70s, I think, um, when, when even before it was the Monroe Institute that uh, they, were, they were using them. Um, so maybe enhance the process. It made it easier to pinpoint um, certain states of consciousness, which Bob Monroe 
labeled the focus levels. So when we talk about, you know, things like focus 10, mind awake, body asleep, there are specific sound combinations. So not only binaural beats as, as people understand them, where you play one sound in one ear, one sound in the other, and your brain works out a differential, but there are sound mixes, there are matrices of layered binaural beats. Um, and those combinations were things that were worked out that then became the focus levels. So then it makes it easier for people to get into particular expanded states. Sometimes on the podcast, we reference or talk about the declassified report from the CIA or U.S. Army about the Monroe Institute. And so in that report, they talk about how the left brain is more analytical and you've kind of got to bypass that to reach the right brain. And you do that through binaural beats. Can you expand on that for us? I can. I mean, you know, what, what I'll say is that the report um, by, um, I think it was called McDonald, um, he, um, you know, he was working for the army at the time and he was trying to understand, um, you know, what, well, basically, you know, can we be more efficient at spying and so on? I mean, that was, that was the goal. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the CIA uh, in particular has a long history of psychic spying with the remote viewing program, Stargate, all that kind of stuff. We don't want to go. Um, but th this was the army, right? So although it was the, the CIA that uh, got their hands on it and then declassified it, it was an army report. Um, and, you know, what McDonald is trying to do is understand from a physics perspective, you know, what the heck just happened? <laughs> you know, I experienced this. What could be the explanation? And I think he's done a, a decent job in trying to explain something. Um, but that's not necessarily everybody's experience who does the, the gateway program. But what I'll say is this, you know, about the left and the right brain. Um, the left brain is really, really good at creating categories. It's really good at creating the maps of reality. And, and it's the realm of your personality. So right here, I'm Luigi, but, you know, I, I have a whole story within my physical body of what Luigi means. And, and similarly, you'll have a Jeff story. And, and, as much as we want to be free from limiting beliefs and so on, a lot of what we we think about and and uh, are even able to observe and so on comes from being in this body, in this personality. So it, 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 to get that view from nowhere is almost impossible from the level of the personality. And the left brain's job is to create this personality and be really, really good at it. And when you look at the brain, you know, we know that the brain is divided into two halves called um, uh, hemispheres. And when, when, you, when you look at the different cerebral hemispheres, you know, the left brain is specialized that detail and categories. And the right brain is specialized with um, holistic sort of expanded and here and now living in the moment information. And those two worldviews happen simultaneously. It's not like you have one or the other. And I think sometimes, you know, when, when people talk about left and right brain, they kind of say you need to shut this off in order for that to happen. That's kind of not true. What, what we need is the ability to be able to shift somewhere in between in terms of worldview perspectives, lean a little bit more into the right so that then we can come back and articulate it into the left. And so if those left brain categories are too, held too tightly, you won't see, literally won't perceive the flow of information that's happening right here, right now, that's coming through and is being is already being perceived by the right brain. You just will delete it and distort it into those categories that already exist. So what what um, what McDonald is hinting at is 
you know, if we can just shut that brain chatter up a little bit, which is usually in the realm of the left brain, then we'll start to notice more of this flow of information that's already in the here and now that is coming through in the right brain. And equally, it's more than both. You know, what you'll tap into isn't something that you reduce down to the right brain. It's that the right brain has the ability to tap into what already exists out there because you kind of you're not separate from it anyway so so the right brain doesn't have the boundary of the self it, it connects to the field it connects to all that is and has that connection all the time and then we have a story that says oh no i can't possibly be connected to that and that's the left brain story so as much as possible what we try to train people to do at the monroe institute is hear that left brain but then just say you know, during this meditation, as we have the headphones on and we're listening to some some frequencies, during that time, just tell your left brain, just just sit on my shoulder and watch. Let let's just experience purely what arises without any preconceived ideas of what that's going to look like. That's why that that category about what the out body experience uh, is can get in the way. You know, let's just move all categories aside for one moment and let's notice what we notice arising in this moment. And that's when you start noticing the flow. It's not you have to create it. It's already there. Part of you is connected to the infinite, to the absolute. It's always there. And so when you when you reduce the noise of the category space of the left brain, then we automatically start to notice stuff that already exists that is being um, uh, channeled essentially through the right brain. Upon reading the report, I'm at the understanding that if you do Monroe's training, you can have the abilities or meditative abilities of a Buddhist monk of 10 or 15 years in a matter of, you know, months or something. Is that correct? There are some famous stories. I mean, there's one in particular where, where uh, a, a Buddhist monk, I think he was from British Columbia, came over and, you know, he... he he wanted to speak with Bob Monroe, and, and when he did, he said, you know, do you guys know what you're doing? Because what you get to in three days takes us, you know, uh, uh, many years, you know, decades to, to achieve, um, which sounds great from the perspective of the Monroe Institute, and it's a great piece of advertising as well. <laughs> um, what I will say is, yes, that's true, and you still have to have the wisdom to recognize it. So it's not that it bypasses uh, the ability to um cultivate mindfulness for instance it's just that it's going to help your brain to get into configurations that people who have been meditating for many decades get into and not having to spend many decades to get into it but you still need to work on recognizing that and then applying that understanding so somebody who says hold on a minute you get here in three days and it takes us 20 years um, can recognize that state because he spent 20 years meditating. You see what I mean? Whereas, you know, you could get somebody who's a complete novice who ends up in a state that it would normally take somebody 20 years and then go, you know, what the heck is this? <laughs> and not know what to do with it. So I think it's important to, to you know, cultivate the wisdom uh, as well. And I think that certain meditative practices are wonderful at that. Certainly what we try to do with helping people to integrate these experiences is, is along those lines as well. Um, but, it, it, you know, we, we're giving people a very fast sports car, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a skilled driver. <laughs> you, know? you still have to do the work. 
Um, but it's going to make it easier for you. And and the thing is, we've got 50 years. I mean, this year will be 50 years um, of experience uh, helping people to learn how to drive properly. And then wherever they choose to go with that, then that's entirely up to them. So, uh, yes, it does do that. It does help uh, to get you into. I mean, like now, you know, we're doing research which gets people into uh, gamma synchrony states. I mean, these are incredibly rare states. They're incredibly rare for for experienced meditators. You know, people getting into forty hertz, a hundred hertz, even more um, frequencies. You know, these are associated with flow, with with uh, um, being in the zone, with with mystical experiences. You know, really getting massive downloads in the here and now. People are having those experiences. Um, at the Monroe Institute, and and you know we have a discovery program or conscious coherence where we measure people's brainwaves while they're um, having these experiences, and you can see these gamma synchrony uh, patterns emerging in their brains. That's incredibly rare, uh, unless you've been meditating for many many decades. So we know that the tech works, and we know that the programs help people to uh, cultivate their own wisdom uh, in order to take advantage of what the technology is doing. Are the programs providing the wisdom or more helping the person cultivate it? I would say a bit of both. I would say that uh, a lot of the time the program says, notice this, notice this, notice this. You know, we direct people's attention to stuff, you know, and, and then the wisdom is already in them. You know, that, that's that's the thing. You know, the, the the this isn't necessarily like an additive process. Of course, we can load people up with tools so that we we teach and that makes it easier to bring out that wisdom. But ultimately, it's more like you take a big block of marble and you're chipping away at all those preconceived ideas, all those limiting beliefs, all those things that hold you back and what you've been pre-programmed with. And, and some of that is biological because we've got fight or flight systems that get triggered very easily uh, because, you know, we have we have a brain that was that was developed in, you know, the savannah 100,000 years ago or whatever. But then we've got cultural messages. We've got family messages, societal, religious, political, blah, blah, blah. And that's chip, 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 chip away at all of that. And what you're left with is actually our inner wisdom. you know. And it, that is the total self. Just, But it's shrouded in all these, these incrustations that really limit us. So you know, when people come, they sometimes come with this belief that there's something wrong with them, that they're missing out on something. And if I go out of body, then I'll be something. And I, I'm, certainly my opinion is that that's just not true. You are absolutely wonderful just the way you are. There's nothing to fix, absolutely nothing. You are perfect. And, and you reach your maximum potential by being born. You know, a newborn baby comes in. You came from the oneness, right? That was pure potential. And you, you, you separated off to interact with yourself. I mean, that's huge. So... Just by being born, you've reached your maximum potential. Everything else is a bonus. And somewhere along that, conditions of worth have crept in. I've said, yeah, I mean, you saw it perfect, but if you do this or that or get that grade or get that job or that house or that partner and blah, 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 then you'll be even even better, right? And that that's that's just something that, that you know, is interesting. It's okay if you want a bunch of things in, in physical reality. I think we're here to experience. That's one of the, the, the things we signed up for. And it doesn't define you. Your your true worth is, is untouchable. 
You know, your true value is is something that is always available, always present. Your inner self is always available to you. There's nothing wrong with you. So what we have to do is is train ourselves to move away from those limiting messages that tell us that we're not good enough, that we lack something, that you know we need to compare ourselves and whatever else. And then you can start to get to that inner voice. And that's really what I think um, a lot of the the especially the early programs that we do at the Monroe Institute are trying to train people to to notice you know there's nothing wrong with you you can get to this kids do it you know they're not having to spend decades cultivating this if anything as adults we have to spend time on doing some of the things to get back to the states that we were able to access as children so it's not an additive process we already had it and then we build over it by saying that we're not good enough in some way an impression from the report that i'm getting is that during rem sleep we all astral travel. Is that correct? Um, again, you know, I, I would, I would say that, um, you know, we kind of do it all the time. You know, there's a part of us that just is tuned into these spaces all the time. Your right brain is there right now, <laughs> right? So you know, it's not like you have to leave anything. There's a physical body, and you have to go. I think what 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 came afterwards in the phasing model was this idea that. Um, Physical reality is just a frequency. And the report hints at that, right? It's just something you're tuning into. So if that's a radio station that you can tune into, then what other radio stations are available? And you, your brain essentially is kind of like a reducing valve, you know, it's like, or or the 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 radio itself that tunes in and says, where am I paying attention? To which signal am I paying attention to right now? So to go out of body essentially means change channel. Does if I'm listening to radio station one and I then turn to radio station two, did I have to leave anything physically from radio station one to go to radio station two? Well, no, the signals are just there. I'm just tuned in. And that's kind of what's going on with, with, with astral projection. You know, you're tuning into another part of yourself that's already somewhere else and uh, experiencing in a different way. And simultaneously, you can actually experience the physical and the non-physical, what we call that, because it's all an extension of one continuum. There isn't really this thing that says physical versus non-physical. I think that's just a language problem. And really, think of it all as vibration, all as frequency. And therefore, this is just like a denser vibration than some of those states that we call uh, non-physical spaces or astral um areas etheric you know you you name it causal realms all of these archaic terms that, that used to exist and still do in in a way you know they're, they're just names of different radio stations mm. you know so so i i don't think you know when so coming back to your question about rem well yeah i mean as soon as you shut your eyes you're already phasing out of this reality and and so the dream world is another reality um, we interact with it. We learn things from it. You know, um, a lot of what our dreaming is is predicting what we're going to do tomorrow. So it's it's you know what happened today. How does that compare to what happened yesterday? What are we going to be doing tomorrow? And and you know the brain's trying to predict, predict, predict all the time, and it's doing this in a in a simulated reality, which is the dream world. It starts with your personal subconscious. So that would be things that just relate to my personality 
immediately. And that's what I encounter, first of all, in the dream. And then I can go a little bit beyond that. So I just ch change the radio station a little bit more. And now I'm tapping into the collective unconscious, as, as uh, Carl Jung described it. And that's when I start to tap into other personalities as well. So I can I can maybe connect with your energy or somebody who's no longer physical. And that's, you know, we're still in the same realm. It's just that, you know, we, we turn the dial a little bit more. So that all of that is available. And so what we call dream is is already changing phase. And then you can turn the dial away from your personality a little bit more. and You can start going into the collective. Then you can go beyond the dream itself and you go into the potentiality. And and that was also hinted at in the in the report um, when he's talking about those oneness experiences and so on. So it sounds like to me it's not really leaving your body. It's just your consciousness goes into a different phase, almost like yes. a different realm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that means that, you know, it makes it a lot easier, actually, to get information from these spaces. I mean, take the remote viewing uh, as an example, right? Remote viewing is is the fancy sort of technical term for clairvoyance essentially and or clairsentience you know remote sensing would probably be a better term because not everybody sees in the in the classic sense like they they they're looking at something as as an object and so on but you take remote viewing getting information at a distance you know there was a whole program CIA program about spying on the russians and so on for that and they came back with some tremendous information i mean i think it's probably the most uh, rigorous in terms of scientific research out there because they had to really nail it, you know? And and so reams and reams of studies that are available on that. And, and you know, the, what, what was declassified um, is just like a tiny paper uh, relative to what's actually available. There's thousands of papers out there um, that you can look at here. What's going on though? The viewer is sat in a room usually and they're just told, you know, what's happening at the target. That's it. You know, they might be given a reference number. It used to be coordinates, but then they changed that because, you know, there's suspicion that somebody could memorize a whole map and know exactly where everything is by, by coordinates. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but who knows? You know, maybe they're autistic savants and they can they can really memorize everything, right? So so they, they just gave random numbers. Okay, what's our target? X, one, two, three, four, five. And they would start to note all of their impressions, what they think they're seeing, what what shapes are coming to them, what smells, what tastes, what feelings, and all of that. That's why it's a more of a sensing thing. And then you would hit the target. Now, that viewer, that that remote viewer in that room, it, under controlled conditions, is not going out of body in the classic sense, and yet they're able to retrieve physically verifiable information at a distance. So. If, if you take the very classic notion of something having to separate to go get information, then, then that limits the understanding of an experience like that. Because when you go out of body in the classic sense, you know, you peel out, you go out the window and you go to a location and come back and verify it and so on. That's great. And that's how you, you'll, you'll have experienced it. But, if you don't have that experience and you still come back with some really good information, then what 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 is that experience? <laughs> you know, it doesn't fit that classification. And yet, I think then when you start talking about the phasing model, it does fit. You know, we just tuned into some frequency where information is available, and we can tap into that regardless of the of the distance, regardless of time. You know, so you can actually. Um, remote view an object, you can get information about a location um, many millennia 
in the past or in the future. Does it really matter? And and you can't shield it either. You can't block anyone from doing it. So it's not a distance. It's not a not a physical type of thing where you you shield. You can distract, but you you don't shield. You know, and, and there's some funny stories about how they used to try to distract uh, remote viewers. But you know that that to me then fits into the OBE spectrum, the out of body spectrum, where it, where it's it's more of this phasing model of reality. You can have this very visceral visceral experience of the lift out, but you can also have bilocation experiences where you're in two places at once. You're aware of your physical body and of interacting with some somewhere else at the same time. You can have lucid dream experiences which go beyond the individual sense of self and and so on you can have near death experiences where you think that you 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 know the experience is that you're way beyond your physical you might not even come back and and you're interacting with those that are no longer physical or having life reviews and all that kind of stuff so a huge array of experiences and it's all frequency so when they are practicing remote viewing either in the military sense or if you're teaching it at Monroe Institute what do they do to focus their attention on to kind of move into that or move out of phase? Well, you can do it without anything. You know, I mean, that's how they did it in the first place. Um, you know, the, 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 there's some people that can just remote view by just saying, okay, leave me in a quiet room without any distractions, without any information overlaying what I'm, what I'm perceiving. And they don't have to be listening to anything. What I, what I think the binaural beats helps with is uh, the ability to get into that cool down period. So how long it takes you to reduce that mental chatter so that you you leave your mind open like a blank canvas for information to flow into so that you're not judging it, you're not trying to place a category because that's that's the problem usually with, with the remote viewing. We we immediately want to categorize. We we see a shape like this, oh, a boat, and, and that then uh, distorts the perception, whereas just stay with the raw data. When you do that, you're, you're going to be far more successful. And it's almost like unlearning to read. You know, we want to immediately take the the squiggles and turn them into a word in our minds, and it's in this instant. Um, and so we have to do that with our perceptions. We have to kind of unlearn grouping them so quickly um, in order to do remote viewing. But the way that it's taught at the institute, you know, we got Joe McMonagall, who was CIA remote viewer number one, who teaches it, um, and it does use uh, binaural beats, but. Um, it's mostly to support in that sense, to try to get into this kind of blank slate mindset. And once you know what that feels like, then you don't need to use the binaural beats. You know, Bob Monroe was very keen to emphasize that these are training wheels. So it, once you learn to recognize a particular state, mentally you place a flag in the ground and you say, okay, I know what this feels like. This is it. Then you can quickly take yourself there um, without having to do um, anything else other than just focus on what that symbol was, you know, that, that came up for you. We do this all the time, but for things that we don't like, you know, we can think about like a boss or an ex-partner or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It, we've got into a mental state instantly by calling up that image, right. By calling up that thought, we're like, Oh, Monday morning. <laughs> you know? So that is in a similar way. We, we take that system, but we use, our imagination in the service of the self rather than in the destructive sense as we do with anxiety and depression. So that's what we're, we're cultivating as well. Can you talk a little bit about the different realms or frequencies that we move into when we go out of phase? Like I think he calls them locals, like local one, local two. 
Yeah, uh, so the locale language was something that um, Bob Monroe wrote about in, in Journeys Out of the Body, his first book. That thing got broken down a little bit more into the focus levels later on. So I'll, I'll kind of talk about both. Um, so locale one, as far as Bob Monroe was concerned in, in, in Journeys, um, related to essentially an energy duplicate of this reality. So it, it, the old term for locale one would be something like the etheric realm. So you're very much in this sort of similar territory. So when you go out of body, you see your body in bed or you're in your bedroom and you can go around the house and explore it and so on. And that's locale one. And and so if you know something's happening on the other side of the world, you go to it, you report back, you can verify certain details and so on. Um, that's what you can do in locale one. And in, in the focus level language, that was more related to focus 10, the state of mind awake, body asleep. Um, so you 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 allow your body to go very very deeply relaxed. It doesn't matter if it hasn't gone to sleep fully because just moving your mind away will do that. Um, if you keep thinking about your body, you're going to be in your body because that's how your mind works, right? So that's probably one of the biggest problems that people have when they're trying out body techniques is that they're spending so long thinking about the body that they actually stay very much in it. Um, you know, you, you'll probably know if you've ever been on a long drive or even a familiar one that you might just end up at your destination and have no idea how you got there. Um, you weren't really physically present. You know, you were mentally thinking about other things and suddenly you arrive at your destination. So that's kind of like a mind away body asleep <laughs> type of state because you just weren't paying attention to your physical senses. So coming back to the body to knock it out seems like a... Um, an inverted way of, of going about the problem. So focus 10 and, and locale one go hand in hand. And then you start expanding your awareness. And this is what we started to call focus 12, which is starting to go a little bit beyond the, the limits of, of the physical system and or at least the physical perceptions. And we start to tune into more intuitive information, symbolic language, and, and, um, and just random sorts of intuitive perceptions that can take place. And now we start to creep into uh, beyond that territories that we uh, call locale two or both call locale two in the first book. And locale two would be more uh, um, in line with, with the older term of the astral. Um, so this is a very thought responsive type of territory. So we're not constrained by the physical senses. We are in a territory that is very fluid, mentally fluid. Uh, we start thinking about things and we can start to conjure them. Um, and so it becomes a little bit more difficult to then uh, physically validate. So in this reality, validate the information that we get from Locale 2, because by necessity, we're actually out of this system or anywhere near it. Um, but in Locale 2, this is where um, in the Monroe uh, system, we have uh, things like the belief system territories where people find themselves um, predominantly when when they've left physical reality for good. Um, you know, so depending on their beliefs when they were in, in the physical, they can find themselves just doing that. So Christian heaven, for instance, would be a locale two type of experience. So would hell. Um, so would be all the other places that you would expect to find yourself when you're no longer physical. And some would just carry on about their business because they might be um, in, the, in a state of confusion. You know, they might have um, not expected to die, for instance, and so on. So they can just carry on doing their, their daily work. Um, so that's what Locale 2 uh, would relate to. And, and this is why it's also important to work on things like fears and limiting beliefs, because you can find yourself in a Locale 2 experience and not know you're in that, 
and you'll be projecting your own fears, you'll be projecting your own beliefs, and then you'll be met by that. And then you'll say, oh, my God, that's what's out there. Um, well, it is only because you're you're in the frequency of it. You know, so this is where sometimes people um, get into territories and, and think, you know, oh, my God, it's hostile. You know, there are things that are attacking me and so on. And, and if you've read Journeys Out of the Body, you'll know that there are many instances where Bob Monroe thought he was being attacked and needed to protect himself and so on. Um, with his understanding, he realized that actually it was a, a lot of it was a projection of his own fear. And if you if you work on that, you just won't be in resonance. You'll be in a different radio station to anything that feels fear-based. And, I, and the fear belongs to the left brain predominantly. I want to stop you for a moment because I don't want to forget this question. It sounds like you said that sometimes people can die and not realize they're dead and end up in locale two and then basically imagine their life and think that they're still living. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, it's, it, you know, like in my experience, you know, what I found is that uh, the older people get, the easier it gets. <laughs> so like whenever I found anybody in locale two, who's, who's, um, you know, that I perceived as being an older person, they're ready to get out of there. You know, they were just waiting for somebody to come and collect them. And I have no idea how I appear to them. I could be an angel. I could be the Grim Reaper. I have no, uh, a family member. I don't know. Um, but they're very okay with being uh, moved along. Usually when, when there's a surprise death, then it becomes a little bit more tricky. So one of the things that we do at the Monroe Institute is we have, um, you know, the Lifeline program. And the Lifeline program is something that follows on from Gateway, where we, we provide essentially a service. Um, where we help people who have trans, uh, who are no longer in the physical, to um, to to move along, to be taken to the place that is most relevant to their development at this time, um, and and sometimes that involves taking people to what we call the park, um, which is a kind of rest area where people can do, uh, where, where people can plan and so on and review their life and then uh, choose their next steps and so on. So the the that. Uh, type of work is particularly useful when there's been a natural disaster or a war um, where a lot of people have died very quickly and they just didn't expect it that then there will usually be some some people from the institute who um, will will perform the task of going to those territories and uh, helping people move along and you know it, it's a tricky thing you know if somebody just came into the room now and said oh okay uh, Luigi Jeff you know you're both dead come with me you probably would, wouldn't go with them. So you have to be quite tactful and empathic. And, and I think one of the things that is really important as well, that we work on our own uh, self-healing in order to be able to then to provide healing for others. Um, because if we're emotionally reactive in those environments, then we're not really of service to anybody. So, you know, we're, we're just like, ah, we met a dead person. Um, and it's not like that. You know, I think mo most people who transition are kind of like, uh, physical life people who are still around, you know, they just carry on about their business most of the time. And then, you know, we can do with a helping hand. Um, and, and that's what we we try to do. But what, what I'll also add is that before anybody listening to this, I was thinking, oh my God, there could be loads of people that are stuck and, you know, what do we do and how do we save them and all that kind of stuff. Um, yes, it's a wonderful task and it's a wonderful uh, ability to be of service to those who are no longer physical and at the same time they are surrounded by guidance so some for some people it's just part of the development process they have to be in that territory just to kind of 
finish off. Maybe there might be some unfinished business that they need to do. Um, and they're being supported in that. And actually, you coming in and helping was probably set up by their guidance in order for you to be able to even notice them. So, it, it, you know, we're, we're, we're players in this, but we're not the only uh, players. And so people aren't stuck indefinitely until you do a Monroe Institute course and go and save them. You know, thankfully, <laughs> because otherwise that will be quite a slow process. But you can learn that ability. And I think one of the main reasons for learning that ability, as well as being of service to those who are no longer physical, is for you to know how to navigate those territories so that when you die, you've got a plan, you know, so that you don't get stuck in these territories. Uh, and 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 by stuck, I mean, you know, just, just delayed. Um, but that you can plan and move on much more quickly and, and enjoy um what's to come afterwards you know don't rush through this enjoy your physical life experience of course but um you know that you don't fear death because it's it's just a, a different frequency do most people come to the monroe institute and say this person died quickly i want you to help them or do they ask you can you please teach me to help them because i think they may be stuck or as you said delayed yeah i i i mean i've experienced a bit of both most people want to know how to do it themselves because they're just not going to believe you if you do it. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, and, 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 I, and I think that's really valid. You know, I, I, I have met some mediums who are absolutely fan phenomenal. I've also met quite a lot of charlatans. And I, I think it's, um, you know, what, what I've noticed in, a, in mediums who are really worth their salt is that they will want to teach you how to do it. They'll say, look, I can do this and I'll show you and and then you can learn to do it because if you just come to me, you're just going to depend on me for information all the time. Why why keep coming through the switchboard when you can have a direct connection? And so the the coming to the switchboard is so that you trust the process, and then you train yourself to have the direct connection, maybe. And so sometimes we get a bit of both. You know, I think it's quite difficult if somebody's uh, you know had somebody in the family who's committed suicide, for instance, to be in the mental space where they could immediately go and learn how to do it because they're just, they're not in that energy space. You know, it's really difficult and they've got to go through a grief process and, and that could take many, many years. And that's perfectly fine because that's what you have to do. You have to grieve. Um, and so just sticking somebody on a training program straight off that can, can be difficult and it probably wouldn't be the best thing for them. You know, it's like you're on fire. You know, you need to put the fires out first before you can then think about how to how to rebuild. So, um, you know, there is that awareness. You know, we 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 check where people are, and and that's why you know we also like when people apply. Sometimes they they comment on the the length of the application form. Well, <laughs> you know, that's third, not not because we're just prying on their on their lives. But it's just like we, we get a good feel for where they are in their development so we can advise accordingly. And most of the time, you know, we'll just say come to the program. But, you know, if they are in that difficult space, we might recommend something else instead first. And and so we can do the the, the help work, as I've said. Uh, we can go in and, and, and help somebody to, um, if necessary, move on to a, a different level where they can uh, continue their journey. Um, but it's preferable if people learn how to do it for themselves because it's not really that difficult. Um, it's a frequency again, you know, and, and usually when it comes to connecting with somebody who's died in your family, then you will have a greater interest in being able to connect with that person than I would. 
So the emotional resonance, the 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 you've got that connection with them already, and and that was cultivated through your personality, through the physical life experience. Therefore, it makes it far easier for you to be able to establish the contact with any third party. Um, so that would that's what I would recommend. You know, this try it yourself first, and if if the emotional um, um, response is is too high, then then yeah, it's okay to work with somebody else, work on that first so that you can feel more comfortable in yourself and so on. But your, your physical body has to grieve the loss of, of somebody. And at the same time, we know we don't lose anybody. You know, that's not what the game is. Death is safe. Um, that's something that at the Monroe Institute, you know, Bob Monroe was keen to emphasize, you are more than your physical body. It's the first line of the affirmation. I am more than my physical body. And the, when you really get that, you'll know death is safe. And so now that you know that death is safe from that perspective, you say, well, what the heck am I doing here? And then it becomes <laughs> a different game. <laughs> and then you say, okay, how can I have a bit more fun here? How can I create what I wanted to create here? You know, what, what can I do when I'm manipulating energy at this dense level of reality where I feel like I'm cut off from everything else? And so the game changes then. And it's less about survival and more about thriving. Are ghosts real? And if so, are they beings that are in local two and then sometimes they'll phase into local one and we'll be able to recognize them or sense them in some sort of way? Yeah, I, I, I think I think that that description would be pretty accurate. Yeah, I would say. I'd say that there, there, there are some who transition that stay very local to this reality. Um, there can be all kinds of reasons for that. Um, a lot of it is is just that they 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 care about or love someone very close and and they they you know so there's a little bit of an addiction there. Um, sometimes they're addicted to the physical system that they want to do things still that isn't available in 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 non physical spaces as easily, uh, or they think that that's how they have to do it, and and so they they carry on the the physical game. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of it is is to do with. Um, you know, being in in a sort of local one type of environment, so you can feel their energy patterns and so on. I've also encountered some um, uh, situations where the 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 ghost, um, so to speak, was actually the projection of the individual. So this was just a part of themselves playing a, a, another type of game with them, and and in, almost inviting them to notice more uh, beyond the physical. So it was it was an extended aspect of the self. So this is. You know where the where the personality right now is a split off from the higher self. Then the higher self can split off again and maybe create something that's that's somewhere in between. You know that seems like an independent personality as well. So um, it's it's a bit of a mixed bag, um, but you, you can tap into other energies. What I would say is that um, if you're ever fearful of it, that's probably saying more about you than about the environment. Um, even if somebody is has transitioned in a, an unexpected way and is angry and whatever else, um, they can't really harm you. And and any sort of uh, fear of threat is what, what is creating the, what you might perceive as the hostile situation. You know, it's not that you can actually be harmed, but fear opens a door and then it's your own fear that kind of gets in the way. If you're in different frequency band, you just won't pick up on that. You know, it's like, it's like oil and water, you know, you just won't mix. If you if you stay in that band, so this this is why um, also different spiritual traditions spend a lot of time, even though they have out of body experiences and lucid dreaming and so on in in their traditions, 
they will spend a lot of time cultivating how to observe without judgment or preference, how to how to develop like loving kindness and this kind of stuff. You know, it's like just happy, happy, joy, joy. You know, you just create these these uh, connections with your heart center. You know, just purely staying in your head or in the gut connections or head heart gut alignment, so that you you bring in all of yourself into an experience, so that you're not thrown off. Um, or if you are, you know how to come back to center very quickly. So cultivating anything that that is to do with relaxation and 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 um, and the relaxed, open focus is is something that I would strongly encourage. And even if you wanted to, then have out of body experiences and and work with those that are no longer physical. Are you saying that if you are out of body and you're in one of the realms, that entities that you may encounter are either a projection of your own mind, or if they are actual other beings, they can't hurt you in any way anyways. Well, they, they, they might be able to hurt you psychologically because you'd be terrified and you don't want to do the experience again. So, you know, in terms of emotional impact, it can be very strong. Um, if somebody's incredibly aggressive to you, even if they don't hit you or something like that, it can still, you know, create an adrenaline rush and, and it heightened cortisol in your system, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that that um, cannot be removed just by, um, you know, saying, okay, well, I go in there and I can't be harmed by anything. If you genuinely know that, then it won't touch you and you won't get into those spaces where you could uh, receive any sort of um, even psychological harm. Um, physically, definitely not. You know, physically, you, you're just in a totally different realm. Um, but mentally, because you're in a thought responsive space like they are, then you know, I think sometimes people can be scared off. And and um, and what I see on the internet, unfortunately, is a lot of people that well, which is great in one sense, a lot of people really interested in astral projection, and then a lot of fear mongering as well, and that's just creating tons of suggestion. And and this comes back to hypnosis. Tons of suggestions that says this place is dangerous and you need to protect yourself. And when you need to protect yourself, then what that says is that um, if I don't do something in a particular way, then I'm unsafe. And there's always a seed of doubt in a protection. You know, it's like, what if I meet something that's just a little bit stronger than me and gets through that shield or whatever it is that I've created? So the, the when, when you get into that knowing that you you are connected to the infinite, you are connected to what people perceive as unconditional love. It's the best thing they can use to describe it, because that's the nearest feeling that we can we can possibly try to conjure. When you're that, how can you be harmed? You are the potentiality experiencing itself as separate. How can that be harmed? There's nothing to harm. You see. When you get it at that level, then you can go into any territory and it doesn't matter. You can just have fun with it, you know. And and then you choose, okay, what is it that I want to cultivate? I mean, I'm talking about having fun with it. I I, I do believe that we can learn a lot of things, not through a suffering path, but through a joyful path. And and that's great, you know. And I think, fortunately, I have a Roman Catholic background that talks a lot about the suffering path. Everything is suffering and sacrifice, and that's how you learn. Uh, yeah. And and these like, well, yeah, but you know, I've also been with my wife for 22 years, and that hasn't been a suffering path, you know. Okay, we've had uh moments, but like anybody else, where where things have been difficult and whatever else. But I would say that's the path, and that's growth through joy. And that's really something that we can we can cultivate. 
So, you know, if you've had any relationships that you've enjoyed, I think you've grown together in, in you know, with those many people there, you know, and then you might consider Mara and what you're doing here and, and you're you're creating something that is joyful expression of what you feel inside and what she feels and so on. And and this is, you know, something that when we really tap into that knowing, then we trust the process. Then we when we go into non-physical spaces, which you do all the time anyway. I mean, just think, you know, that this is kind of what the report was hinting at. You know, when you go into deep sleep, for instance, I mean, he was talking about REM. And but when you go into deep sleep, you're in the potentiality, you're in the oneness. And and certain systems talk about being conscious within deep sleep. And when you're in conscious deep sleep, you're in, well, in, in Tibetan dream yoga, for instance, they refer to as clear light dreaming. You know, there aren't any objects like you get in REM. So there isn't a subject observing a, a world of objects. You're in the potential and from the potential you manifest. And maybe that leads to a dream or maybe you just stay in that potentiality. So what your nature is, is indestructible. You can't be harmed. You're only being harmed by thinking that you're separate from your environment. And then there's something that needs to be protected because I, I have to look after Luigi and this perishable body. And I take that habit into a non-physical environment, and, and that is a habit, and then I still think I have a body there. You see what I mean? This is where the, the old idea, the, 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 the lift-out idea of the out-of-body experience for me is quite limiting because what it says is, I go out of body and then I'm in an energy duplicate and then I have to kind of move around an environment in that. That to me isn't fully out of body because I've still got a body and a location to my personality that involves that, that observing that environment and navigating within it. Cool, but isn't a full out of body. A full out of body is connecting with the, with the potential with all that is. And I think that report does touch on that. You know, it does say, Hey, look, you know, we can go into the absolute. <laughs> like let's, let's, Let's let's cut out the middleman, which is the the out of body state. Let's just go right into the the pure potentiality, and then when I come out of that, I say, okay, what do I choose to manifest? Because everything is available to me at that point, and now I can um, cultivate my free will. Now I can express it when I come back into form. So tons available to you, and and how could you possibly be harmed with that connection? I don't know if the Monroe Institute teaches this, but if not, what are your thoughts on what happens when we die and how does reincarnation relate to that? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really great question. Yeah, the Monroe Institute definitely touches on that. Um, it, was a, it was a massive topic um, uh, as Bob explored it, and it, it was covered in his books, uh, especially second and third books. Um, for our journeys and an ultimate journey. Um, so when we die, we we immediately find ourselves in a territory which is uh, what we refer to as Focus 23. Um, and this is the kind of the new arrival territory, energetically. And we might spend a fraction of a second there, <laughs> you know, whatever that might mean at that level of reality. Um, or immediately find ourselves moving on from there into one of the belief system territories. So typically, where, where our habits are, we're drawn. And one of the things then that uh, Bob discovered and, and wanted to share with, with people, you know, he created a map for this. And, you know, the map isn't the territory, but it, it can be a useful guidepost. So he's saying, okay, if there's people that are kind of in belief system territories, then the chances are at some point they're going to need to get out of them. 
and some belief system territories are more restrictive than others. So some are, are less fun than others. Some are really great. And we just want to stay there for a very long time. So if somebody came along and said, well, let's get out of here, you say, well, no, I'm not for fun. Um, beyond all of those is a territory, which is still a belief system territory, but l l far less restricted, still being created by human minds. And I'm talking purely about human consciousness here which Bob Monroe referred to as the park or the way station. And this is what we call Focus 27. And Focus 27 is a state uh, beyond the belief system territories, as I've said. And in that, a lot of healing takes place, life reviews, planning for the next stage of your uh, life journey. And so it is planned, but it's planned at the level of the higher self. So sometimes people might come into this reality and say, why the hell? Would I have planned this life because it's absolutely diabolically painful? Um, you didn't plan it, but you as the expanded higher self did, right? So you're here to learn something that maybe the higher self hadn't experienced and would like you to learn, and therefore that's what you come in and do. And then you feed that information back into the higher self. It's doing it right now. And when you then merge with it, uh, when you're no longer... Um, in this physical life system, then then the game continues. How does it continue? And this relates to the reincarnation question. The reincarnation question then becomes, okay, well, what habits were you cultivating? Because then that will influence how another part of yourself will, will split off and experience reality again. Ideally, you would say, okay, what parts have I not explored that would contribute to the development of my higher self and then come back in with willful control. Or you can choose at that point to come out of the system and who knows what happens after that because I can only talk about what's in the system um, because I'm still in it. <laughs> you know, So that that's really you know kind of in a nutshell where it fits. Um, if you're here, it's because you're still here to gather some information that your higher self finds valuable. And then you'll keep coming back in until you've learned the lesson of that. So if you don't get the lesson, then you'll just keep having it. And that can be in a, in a happy life experience. It can be in a difficult one. Just think about repetitive dreams. Just think about nightmares that recur. You know, until you get the lesson, until you integrate and put into action something new that will help to bring new information into the system or that you've learned your lesson and then you can move forward, then the dreams will recur. They'll just keep happening. So this allows you to so that complete that. You say, okay, well, I've done that now, next phase. And this is what we can start to plan uh, from within the park. And, and you know, different mystical traditions talk about this as well, you know, favorable rebirths and so on. You know, once you get to the point that you are aware of how the mechanism works, you can choose to keep coming back into the system, but you, you're being very deliberate about how you're doing it. And it might be that you're here to, to be of service to help others to wake up a little bit more and that's the like a bodhisattva um kind of path or you just here because you just eh, well you know i had a difficult life last time and i'd like to just goof off uh for, for one fine go for it you know you can totally do that as well so not everything has to be this kind of lofty spiritual goal you know it could just be you know let's explore there's a lot of curiosity that we can play with it's common for near-death experiencers to report to me that they end up in a place called the black void. Yeah. Does Monroe talk about that? And if so, what is it? Okay, so 
not everybody experiences it in the same way when we go to it outside of a near-death experience. In the near-death experience, the black void is that pure potentiality that I'm talking about, that I've mentioned, you know, that, that uh, you know, that unconditional love, but it, it goes beyond that. Um, often when you hear people talking about the black void, they feel like they were, they were held, they were almost like in a, in, in this kind of fetal, like in, inside a womb type of experience, you know, they were absolutely held. Um, and the unconditionality comes through that. It is an emotion here. We're talking about just you you are purely accepted for exactly as you are. That um, that is in in the in the near-death experience is experienced slightly differently to how people would experience it, say, if they went in with what we call focus 15, which is again the void or the no time state. Because um in a near-death state then they're needing to be held because something's happened to them that has meant that they're, you know, either going to leave or or uh, have left and, and permanently left, in some cases, the, the, the physical system. So there's a nurturing aspect of that uh, void. But it's a potentiality. And we, in the Gateway program, we, we teach people how to get into it, um, how to experience it. Not everybody experiences it uh, as directly as that. but this is a space that, as I said, we call it focus 15, the state of no time, or I prefer a, a term of like all time, you know, there's a potential for everything uh, that hasn't manifest yet, you know? So it's, it's that, that's the thing about a, a black void, you know, it's, it's, it's not condensed into anything. That blackness isn't empty. And, and it, it's, it's, it's actually really full. It's just not of any one thing. It's a no thing state, not a nothing, right? So when when you're when you're in that space, then you can start to say, okay, well, what do I want to create? And you can use it in a manifestation creation kind of sense, or you just stay in it and tap into the the, the sense of what that possibility feels like, because then you can tap into its frequency at any time in your life. So even in the waking state, you can tap into something like Focus 15. You can tap into that potentiality and say, what is needed in this moment? And from that potential base, then you can arise all kinds of creative solutions. And that gets us past you know, some of those limiting beliefs that we have in, in waking reality where we think, well, is it this option or that option? Is it red or is it blue or whatever? And it's like, well, actually, no, we can be far more creative than that. And by tapping into that potentiality, we allow its expression. So th there's the different ways that people can experience that voidness um, depending on what they bring into it. You know, some people fly right through it because as soon as they have any sort of nothingness, then they think, oh, I'm in the wrong place and I need to create something and they immediately find themselves in another environment. So, you know, if you can cultivate yourself to, um, to be open and to not try to always fill a mental environment, then it allows you more and more access into those sorts of potential spaces. I think you would agree that our higher self creates our physical body here like we are our physical bodies are ultimately a manifestation of our consciousness and receiving our consciousness at the same time so if that's true is it two things is it impossible for someone to steal your body while you're out of it and two is it impossible for someone to be called what people refer to as a walk-in like how could someone else's consciousness walk in and take over someone else's body 
two great questions. Okay, so the 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 first one, um, because we're talking in terms of frequency, it's not like anything leaves anything other than attention. <laughs> you know, so that nobody can come into your body and uh, no, and and you know, steal it while you're out of it and all that kind of stuff that you find in movies like Insidious and all that kind of stuff. You, you're perfectly fine um, as you are whenever you're traveling anywhere. Um, you would have that problem every single night, in theory, you know, because you think, well, I'm out, you know, and, and if there was anything that really wanted to get in, they could, you, you, I mean, not everybody's so well trained in out-of-body experiences that they know how to protect and shield themselves and blah, 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 every time they fall asleep. And that would technically be the most vulnerable time. So, you know, while you're asleep, aliens could be coming in and dancing around your bedroom and then lying back down and jumping back out, you know, for you to come in in the morning. And maybe that's why you're tired, I don't know. Um, but you know that doesn't happen. Um, the second part of the question about well, I mean, I suppose that that kind of uh, flows from it is you know, yeah, I, I suppose if you're if you're if you're thinking just purely in terms of frequencies, then um, you could technically tune into somebody else's because it's all available. So one thing that sometimes people can do is just tap into somebody else's life thread because that's still part of, of the potentiality, you know? So seeing as we're all split off from that, then technically you could go, you're on the internet, you call up somebody else's webpage, you know, and then you can have an experience that seems to be their, their life experience. Um, in that sense, you possibly could do it. But that doesn't mean that you could ruin somebody's life and live for them. You could just tap into something, you know, so you tap it into the vibration only. Would you say it's kind of like you're just tapping into that person's experiences? Yeah, because, you know, I mean, people people end up having that, you know, the, a lot of synchronicities happen like that. You're thinking about somebody, they're thinking about you and you suddenly call each other or something like that, you know. Uh, so you, you're, you're somewhere there tapping into each other's uh, web pages, you know, and and that can happen. Um, what would it require? It requires kind of leaving your consciousness a little bit, leaving your story a little bit so that you can phase into information that's already out there. Are you tapping into that person? Or are you just tapping into information in a field? I'm not quite sure um, is the short answer because I think all of that information goes into a field um, and, and therefore we can we can tune into it. Does it mean that you were that person? Um, that, that's why I think sometimes, you know, you end up with these uh, past life experiences where, you know, maybe 100 people were Cleopatra. And you think, well, how could 100 people be Cleopatra? Well, that's such, such a strong imprint that people could tune into that web page and say, oh, wow, I got a big download about this person's life experience. Therefore, I must have been them. Well, no, not necessarily. You were just able to tune into a frequency of them. And and that's why you know not everybody's you know yeah okay with Cleopatra but who was the person looking after her camel or whatever you know it's like nobody tends to be that person you know <laughs> so um, because the 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 desire to read that web page is quite low <laughs> you know what I mean so so yeah I do think that that we we do contribute in that sense to the field and therefore it is possible to tap into. Um, information about somebody and, and their life experience and whatever else. And at all levels, you know, that this is the other thing. You know, it's not like, I mean, I'm using the web page analogy, but that isn't quite accurate. I'm talking about a, a, a 360, 720 experience of that individual 
uh, because that's all the data that they're feeding into the field. So you can tap into that whole thought packet, that whole uh, sensory packet, and experience that. And then you would be like, wow, I've, I've lived as that person. But really, you just tapped into uh, a, a thought stream, you know? Hmm. So it's a little bit ambiguous, but uh, don't worry about ruining anybody's life. You probably got enough on your plate to, to work on your own. <laughs> My personal experience with the Monroe Institute has been using the videos on YouTube. I mostly mm -hmm. use the um, introduction to the gateway experience, and I'm, sometimes mm -hmm. I've done the um, resident tuning. Do you think that's a good place for most people to start? Well, I mean, the Wave Series is certainly a great place to start. I would say, though, that just be careful what you find on YouTube. If it isn't off our official channel, um, YouTube can sometimes massively compress audios and so on. And I know people have uploaded all kinds of things. Um, so it, it, to get the real effect, you need the quality, uh, the sound quality, and especially for it to be um, in a stereo field and not joint stereo. And I think sometimes for compression purposes, people upload things um, in, in all kinds of formats. Sometimes I've even come across things that are mono. Um, so that won't give you the binaural beat. And then people listen to it and say, oh, this doesn't work. Well, that wasn't the stuff. So if it's on the Monroe Institute channel, then absolutely, you can start with that. We also have an Expand app, Expand Beyond Meditation, which is an app that we launched uh, last year. And that would be a wonderful place to start because we really designed that for people who do nothing about the Monroe Institute as a as a taster. And and yes, there's a there's a paid aspect to it, but there's 25 free meditations within that just to give you a really nice flavor of what we do. Um, that and and people report wonderful experiences from that. So, um, that would be the what I would say would be the best place to start. Probably our app. Um, All right. And and then there's yeah there's some things on our website as well. Well, after watching this podcast, people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions or perhaps people from the Monroe Institute. Are yeah. you up for that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I might not get back to you instantly because I'm all over the place in the world. <laughs> but uh, but certainly, you know, if you go onto the Monroe Institute website, my contact details are on there under the trainer list. Um, others might be in your area that are closer that you can contact because we have trainers all over the world. So, you know, just have a look at uh, your ge geographical region. You know, obviously we have the main uh, Monroe Institute campus in Virginia. That's the only building that we own in, in terms of a campus. Um, so, but then the, there are trainers like myself out in the field who um, will hire local facilities, like say in, in the Midlands in England, I use a center here, um, which I've been using for the last sort of 11 years now. And and then we run the programs like Gateway and so on at that. But, you know, there's the people all over the place. So they're all on the Monroe Institute website. So if you go on monroeinstitute.org, you'll find that. Specifically me, monroeinstituteuk.org, if you want to know about things that are in the UK. But monroeinstitute.org would be your best place to start because that will funnel you into all the different um, territories and so on. And if you have any questions, then you can you can pause them there. Do you have anything that you're working on that you want people to know about? Well, yeah, any, anything that new that we're working on is, is uh, in terms of technology, is making its way into the Expand app. So um, where we have our technology, uh, Monroe Sound Science, developed from the binaural beats, and now we're also adding uh, different ways of delivering sound because we found them to be 
um, very supportive of moving into things like gamma synchrony. So, you know, phase modulation and uh, frequency amplitude modulation, these are all um, uh, together with the binaural beats or non-binaural um, ways of delivering sound can also uh, help people to get into expanded states of consciousness. And um, and all of that is is making its way into the app. And, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly developing the sound. We're constantly developing new applications. So, you know, one of the things that I would say is, is if you want to be at the cutting edge of what we're doing, follow us on, on Instagram, uh, follow us on, on Facebook and, and, or uh, sign up to the newsletter and, and you'll, you'll be kept up to date because often we, we put things out there for our, um, members and and it costs nothing to be a member you know you can just sign up to a newsletter and we'll put be putting out things that we're working on we're, we're also working with uh, musicians with with music artists for instance where they are including our sound technology in their music um and and you know the the, the some recent collaborations have just just launched so they're worth checking out as well um with um um uh, Robert Koch, for instance, is, is just one example of something that's just uh, launched. So again, though, you know, you'll find out about that if you just follow us on Instagram on, on the Monroe Institute. Luigi, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? You're more than your physical body. You can't be destroyed. You are the infinite experience in experiencing itself as separate um, and you can learn through joy. You can grow through joy. And so what would you like to create for yourself? Because if you focus your energy there, that's what you're going to end up getting. And a lot of the time we hold ourselves back because of conditions of worth. Let's just move those to one side and have some fun because we can all do that. We can all help each other to grow. So trust the process. Trust that your higher self is guiding you because you're never cut off from it. It's always there in the background. Luigi, thanks for that message. It was a pleasure having you today. I've got a ton of questions left, so I hope we meet again. Yeah, it'd be a pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.